Welcome to Inspired. I'm your host this week, Kimberly Winston, keeping the seat warm for Umbreen Khan. This week, we're looking at some of the religion stories behind the headlines in politics and beyond. These are generally not feel-good stories, but I don't want to leave you on a down note. So I hope you'll catch the enthusiasm and sense of joy in my next guest's voice as he describes reporting on Zoroastrians, a religious group whose ancient faith has influenced Christianity and Islam. David Crary has been a reporter for the Associated Press since the 1970s, but he's only recently moved to the religion desk. There, he oversees a team of reporters who cover religion around the world. I reached him at his home in Brooklyn, where he told me about covering the Zoroastrian World Conference, which took place earlier this summer in New York. So let's just start with the basics. Tell me, who are the Zoroastrians and what do they believe? Yeah, this was a real learning curve for me. I'd seen the word. I knew a little bit about what part of the world they started. Hardly anything else. And I realized if that was the case for me, it's probably the case for an awful lot of people around the world. Oh, yeah, I've seen that name, but what what are they? So it was fun to learn. One of the most ancient faiths uh, of all, many, many thousands of years old, older than Islam, older than Christianity, certainly. The real details of its founding are kind of murky. It's like, was it this century or that century? There are no written records from the time. A lot of the stuff was passed down orally. But the common denominator is there was a prophet variously known as Zoroaster or Zarathustra. This prophet was preaching some of the basic tenets that got picked up by these other major, bigger faiths about this kind of perennial conflict between good and evil, the need to uh, do good works, to uh, think about others, etc., etc. Very foundational things. They seem kind of old hat and obvious now, but at the time that uh, Zarathustra or Zoroaster was preaching, they weren't for given things they weren't they weren't taken for granted so he, he a lot of scholars believe he was in effect a pioneer theologically what are some of their key beliefs well that's that's a good question what distinguishes them is that they are arguably the oldest monotheistic religions mm. so they have one god like islam and christianity and judaism there are older kind of indigenous religions that were um polytheist more than one god but Zoroastrians absolutely are monotheists, and they see their God as being in a perpetual conflict with an actual, uh, the equivalent of a devil, the the evil spirit, and they're constantly in conflict. Uh, They believe that the benign God generally prevails, but that the conflict never goes away. So I guess it's sort of like heaven and hell for some Christians who believe in those things. Hell never disappears. It's always there, similar with the Zoroastrians. They very much believe in the spirit of doing well for oneself. Success, even gaining wealth, is good, but if you gain wealth, you should share it with others. So that goes back ancient days of this faith, and yet it's still an admirable concept now. And and the modern-day Zoroastrians are known for philanthropy, and civic engagement. They take a lot of pride in that. In the piece, you say there are only about 125,000 Zoroastrians worldwide. Later religions that were influenced by Zoroastrianism are magnitudes 
larger. Why are there so few Zoroastrians? Yeah, that that fascinated me to have that question posed. And then equally fascinating that there are a couple of very specific answers to that. Perhaps most importantly, when the um, Zoroastrians of ancient days fled from Iran, and the reason they fled from Iran is it was taken over by fairly uh, energetic, zealous Muslims, Arab invaders who took over Iran, and they were not very tolerant of other religions. So a lot of Zoroastrians, not all of them, but a lot fled from Iran and moved to India, which for centuries has been the largest population of this faith. When they got to India in order to try to be good neighbors and not be persecuted again, they set a policy on their own, as I understand, we will not convert. We won't convert anybody. And they've stuck to that policy or tradition ever since, even in other parts of the world. So it's kind of fascinating that they aren't trying to grow their numbers through conversion. They never did it. They still don't. So that's one reason. And then the other reason, sort of more present day, is a lot of uh, devout Zoroastrians don't believe in even bringing into their face, say, someone who married a Zoroastrian. That Hmm. spouse, that spouse, and even their children, by fundamentalist viewpoints in this faith, they don't really count. So in other words, the only children who would count would have both parents be Zoroastrian. And these days in the uh, Western communities of Zoroastrian, in the U.S. and Canada, Australia, there are a lot of mixed marriages. So they don't get counted as, as increasing the number. So those two reasons put together and answer the question. And they're worried. They're all worried about the demographics. They're, they're not pleased with it. So the impetus for this story was that New York was hosting the World Zoroastrian Conference. Tell me what that is. They try to have this global meeting every four years. Um, this is not through the centuries, but through recent decades. And because there's such a diaspora of Zoroastrians, they find it helpful and uh, sociable to try to bring delegates from literally all over the globe. I mean, we're talking Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, uh, the Middle East, uh, Canada, U.S., Western Europe. So they really are, are far flung. And maybe uh, 1,000 or 1,500 delegates will show up in one place. And this year, it was New York City, the first one in the U.S. for uh, 20 years. And uh, they have very uh, a diverse agenda for young people, for women, for entrepreneurs. You know, it was not all theology. Uh, I was fascinated by the, the diversity of the agenda. Uh, very upbeat, you know, but they were tackling head on their demographic problem. What do we do to keep ourselves uh, viable? Hmm. One of the things you say in the story is the future is in the hands of young Zoroastrians. What are some of the challenges that young Zoroastrians face? Well, I think there are some Zoroastrians in general, but probably a disproportionately larger number of young Zoroastrians who would be interested in loosening the uh, intermarriage thing. That's not like an absolute no-no to discuss in different communities around the world. There are different approaches to that issue. So I think among Zoroastrians who want to continue thriving, uh, there's a fair bit of interest in loosening that thing. So that would be one 
thing. I think the other is that there are um, a lot of young people who kind of have lost touch with the faith and yet are really curious about it. Uh, I learned about a program where young Zoroastrians are taken on a sort of tour of their regions of India. It's a little bit like the program for uh, U.S. Jews, the so-called birthright program, where they go to Israel and learn about Judaism. And there seems to be a lot of interest in that. They aren't necessarily going to become devout Zoroastrians immediately, but they want to learn more about where this faith came from or where their ancestors came from. So maybe that's also a reason for some optimism as, as that kind of mindset spreads. What kind of organizational hierarchy do they have? Like, you know, Catholics have the Pope and on down and um, the United Methodists have a board and a this and a that. What do Zoroastrians have? Do they have a single governing body? My understanding is it's a very decentralized religion, a little bit like some of the uh, Orthodox denominations where there's a geographic association, whether it's Canada or the U.S. or Singapore, that kind of runs Zoroastrian affairs in that region. But there definitely is nothing equivalent to uh, the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury at all. So the young folks may be able to have some control over the intermarriage issue or any other issues? That is correct, Kimberly. It would be, it, it would be done on a regional basis. A community in Singapore or Canada would decide, you know what, we're going to approach this differently. And there's no higher up uh, who can say, no, you, you can't do that the way the Pope could try to do. In the story, you cite the U.S., Britain and Australia as places where the Zoroastrians are growing in numbers. And part of that has to do with just general immigration patterns. But what else contributes to that growth of Zoroastrianism in those countries? I think it's because they're counting um, some of these uh, offspring of mixed marriages. Canada is also in that category. So there's a different approach uh, there. So the two factors, as you mentioned, immigration. So there'd be people coming from South Asia for example, to Canada or to California, the big South Asian communities in those two North American countries. So the immigration, and then when they get to these new countries, they loosen up their approach to welcoming uh, people from mixed marriages. One more factor, I guess because a lot of these families are more prosperous here in the States, they may feel uh, more comfortable having their more kids, even if it's an all Zoroastrian marriage. It makes a difference, obviously, if, if you have one or two kids or four or five. And I think there's a, a sense that these are larger families now in some of these new communities. When I called you to ask you to be on the show, um, you said you were really glad that you did this story on the Zoroastrians. Tell me why. You know, that's a pretty easy answer. I mean, one of the things I've loved about being a journalist for a long time is the opportunity to learn about stuff you didn't know before as part of the job. You do it so that you can write a thoughtful, informed story. This one was particularly fun for me because I felt like I should have known more about Zoroastrianism than I did. I realized I knew you know, a smidgen, almost nothing. And it was really fun in the space of 10 days to learn a lot for someone, an, an outsider, talk to some people. I sent them links to my story uh, when it ran, and I was so thrilled that they said, this is a, a wonderful story. So it was very satisfying to learn on the fly, talk to the right people, read the right kind of summaries, and then come out with a story that they appreciated and thought was well done. So it was a fun project and it worked out well. Thank you.
That was my guest, David Crary, a religion reporter with the Associated Press. If you're interested in finding out more about David and our other guests, Steve Raby and Emily McFarlane Miller, head over to this episode's page on our website at www.interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcatcher of your choice. And you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, Richa Karmakar, Kevin McCarthy, and Umbreen Khan. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.